Stars Over Surrey with Dave Gemitis and John Axtell from the Guildford Astronomical Society. Welcome, John. We're going to talk about the world of spaceflight and astronomy, your constellation of the month, what to look for in the night sky in March, and events at local astronomy societies. But first, what's been happening in spaceflight and astronomy then, John? Hello, Dave. Quite a few interesting things, SpaceX to talk about, of course. Uh, but as an amateur astronomer myself, the, the thing I want to concentrate on first is something that has never, ever happened before uh, and was discovered uh, by an amateur astronomer. Not one in the UK, uh, but a, a chap called Victor Busso, uh, who's in Argentina. Now, he was um, imaging uh, a galaxy. Many amateur astronomers uh, do astro-imaging. And when you do this, you take lots of exposures, um, perhaps, you know, 30 seconds or so, as in his case, uh, and you take uh, hundreds of these uh, and stack them to give a, a good, clear image. Now, what he was doing was testing a brand new camera on his 16-inch telescope and happened to be imaging a galaxy that's 85 million light-years away. Happens to be called NGC 613. There you go. Uh, When he looked at his images, he found that... A, a, a supernova had occurred during the time that he was exposing his images. So several of the later images showed this bright spot, uh, which was the, uh, the the effect of the supernova. Um, but looking earlier uh, in the series of images, it wasn't there. So he'd actually captured the start of a supernova and And that's the first time the very first time many amateur astronomers have discovered supernova i've imaged them myself uh, but uh, i've never nobody has ever discovered um you know that one actually happening no no professional observatories have ever done this and it just happened by circumstances and uh, chance that he recorded this but this is uh, uh, you know a splendid testament to the collaboration that sometimes happens between amateur astronomers and professional astronomers you know he immediately uh, uh, let the professionals know uh, and they confirmed that there was indeed uh, the supernova there. Um, and they, they have said that the chances of uh, somebody seeing it actually occur lie somewhere between 10 million to one and 100 million to one. So it really was a, a tremendous you know, a, a occurrence. Um, it was a, a, there are several different types of supernova. This one was a, a type 2b. And that's when you have a, a massive star about 20 times the size of our sun when it runs out of fuel. So the fusion stops, nuclear fusion stops. And that means that um, uh, the pressure that that fusion uh, would normally generate ceases. And so gravity, uh, which is normally balanced by that pressure, uh, wins. So all of the outer layers of the star tear into the middle, the core, and rebound, uh, causing a huge explosion and that massive optical brightening, which is what uh, uh, Victor Busso recorded. So, score one for the amateur astronomy community. (laughs) But uh, let's move on to what the professionals are doing. 
And we just have to talk about uh, SpaceX. Oh, we love SpaceX. <laughs> Don't we just? I, I really got great respect for Elon Musk. The Falcon Heavy, I'm sure all of our listeners will have seen on television the successful flight of uh, the Falcon Heavy. It, it was a few days late, but that wasn't his fault. It was, um, you know, the, the federal government uh, closed down because of budgetary issues. And given that he's the, um, uh, the, the boss also, not just of SpaceX, but of Tesla, the, uh, the car manufacturer, he decided to, uh, um, as this was just a, a maiden flight, just purely a test flight, no no um, paying customer or expensive communication satellite or anything like that on top. Why not uh, do a bit of advertising for, for both companies? And so he put his own personal, and the colour was cherry red, Tesla Roadster sports car um, into the nose cone and it was equipped with uh, it was on a gantry with um, uh, cameras front back and to the side uh, and they returned some absolutely splendid images of the star man who was a a mannequin dressed in a spacesuit and fixed to the front seat uh, against um, the the earth and there's wonderful sights and if uh, you know listeners would like just just go on to youtube and key in um, you know uh, there's a Falcon Heavy maiden flight or Starman, something like that, uh, and you'll find the, uh, the the video clips, and they really are worth worth watching. One thing you'll note on the front car, uh, on the front win- um, panel uh, of the car were the words "Don't panic," which of course were the words on the front of the book. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the the Galaxy. Galaxy. And in the glove compartment, a really nice touch, he had a copy of the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide. So any aliens finding that, (laughs) wonderful. That is cool. (laughs) But uh, it was a tremendous success in... um, it is now the world's uh, biggest uh, launcher by a factor of you know two or three times, but it's also cheaper. The nearest um, heavy rocket is the uh, again an American one, uh, the uh, Delta IV heavy uh, launcher, uh, but that can throw twenty eight or twenty nine tons into low Earth orbit, compared to the Falcon Heavy's um, sixty three tons. And uh, the Falcon Heavy uh, can do it cheaper, and I'll explore that in just a a little bit more. However, not a complete success. There were a a couple of failures. One tremendous success was the side boosters. Remember that the Falcon Heavy was uh, three Falcon 9s strapped together. The outer two had flown before. They had launched things, uh, satellites into orbit, had landed vertically been, um, and had been refurbished and flew again. Now, those landed successfully side by side. Simultaneous, wasn't it? Absolutely. It's just like out of Dan Dare or something like that. Again, uh, listeners can find that on the um, uh, on YouTube, you know, either at the end of the Falcon Heavy maiden flight video or just uh, key in um, Falcon Heavy boosters landing, something like that, and, and you'll find it. it's well worth watching. They'll now be retired because those are older version of the Falcon 9. For future launches, uh, they will be using um, later versions. Um, 
But some parts, like the titanium steering vanes, those are going to be reused because they're worth about six million each. Uh, and, and each of those craft has four, I think. But the central uh, Falcon 9 that made up the Falcon Heavy, that was due to be recovered at sea. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, not enough of its rockets fired, uh, so it missed uh, the landing barge. Uh, but uh, enough uh, floated for them to uh, uh, recover some useful parts. Again, I think they salvaged the titanium steering vanes from uh, that one. Another factor was that um, the top stage uh, put the uh, Tesla Roadster into orbit a little bit faster than was intended. So that meant it's got a slightly wider elliptical orbit uh, than intended. Now, that's something they'd have to uh, address for uh, paying customers who want their, you know, their, 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 their satellites in exactly uh, the right orbit. Um, scientists um, have looked at uh, Elon Musk's claims about where the, uh, uh, the, the, the car will go. Um, he had initially said that it would reach the orbit of Mars. Not not Mars itself, but w- where Mars's orbit is. And then he said, oh, it was a bit faster, that will go to the asteroid belt now. But uh, uh, observatories think that's a little bit over-optimistic and it'll be somewhere in between. And we have got images of the roadster in deep space. Um, uh, even amateurs have uh, imaged it because so, it's about as bright as a 19th magnitude star. You, know, you need a really big telescope or good uh, camera system to image it. But you can see it as a little trail uh, against the, you know, for a time-lapse photograph uh, moving against the stars. Um, the scientists have said that there's a, a 6% chance of the roadster uh, colliding with Earth, uh, but somewhere in the next million years. So no need to worry about it coming down and uh, being given an intergalactic parking ticket. <laughs> One thing about the um, heavy uh, launcher, uh, that was going to be used uh, to send a, a couple of private playing passengers uh, around the moon. Um, in the same way that Apollo 8 did, um, in a free return tra- trajectory, in a man-rated Dragon 2 capsule. Now, um, SpaceX are still continuing with the man-rating of the Dragon 2, because that will be taking astronauts up to the space station. But uh, uh, on the 8th of this month, after the um, launch of Falcon Heavy, Elon Musk announced that they're not going to go for man-rating the Falcon Heavy rocket. So that presumably means that those um, uh, customers uh, won't now uh, get uh, to the moon, which which is a shame, I guess. But um, although the economics of the uh, Falcon Heavy are that it's very attractive, much lower cost than anything else, there aren't that many paying customers uh, for that need some, such a heavy uh, rocket. Um, they've just got four Falcon Heavy launches uh, on their manifest. Viasat, um, Inmarsat, which is a ma- maritime uh, satellite, um, an Arabian satellite, and also uh, a United States Air Force um, secret satellite is to be uh, launched uh, using the heavy launcher. But they have got 44 Falcon 9 launches um, already booked because uh, most satellites are, are, are of a size that just need something like the Falcon 9. Uh, 
And of course, only uh, a fortnight or so after the uh, uh, the heavy Falcon uh, launch, um, a Falcon 9 was launched with uh, another uh, Elon Musk um, uh, innovation, which was uh, Starlink, which is the idea of putting um, communication satellites in orbit that are particularly geared uh, to enable people in rural areas uh, to have uh, a broadband uh, connection that is difficult uh, where they live. And those two uh, uh, satellites are called Tintin A and Tintin B. So those are a prototype ones that uh, uh, he's, he's just launched. So, uh, you know, great credit to him. He does have uh, an awful lot of um, uh, wonderful plans, but he is famous, I'm afraid, for date slipping. And he just says, these dates are aspirations. <laughs> so they're not deadlines. At least he gets things done. But I think they're going to be concentrating on their um, uh, big F uh, rocket, uh, which perhaps stands for Falcon. <laughs> we don't know. OK, I suppose we really ought to move on. But I've got a, a, a link um, b- between SpaceX and my next topic, which is Mars, because... Um, Elon Musk, of course, uh, says that uh, he, he would like to use the uh, the BFR uh, to take people to Mars, to set up a Martian base. Uh, he himself has said, I would like to die on Mars, just not on impact. Which I think is a, a wonderful line. <laughs> so uh, let's, get to, let's get to Mars, but not via SpaceX, but via uh, NASA. Now we've got um, a very famous uh, Martian rover on the surface at the moment, uh, Curiosity. Um, and that's been making its way up to uh, Mount Sharp, uh, on Mount Sharp. Um, it's reaching the points at higher elevation where it hopes to find evidence to explain why Mars uh, transitioned from a warmer, wetter world that we know it once was to the frozen, arid one uh, of today. But it's currently perched at a point before it moves on, uh, but where it looks back to um, all of its uh, traversals uh, following its landing. Um, And it's produced a a panorama pictured by its masthead camera. Uh, And that is on, uh, again, uh, YouTube, um, or, of course, on the uh, NASA uh, website. Uh, I I really would uh, commend people to go off and have a look at that uh, and play with the panorama. You can uh, scan around, and uh, and it traces out the steps uh, that Curiosity has made. Now, whilst we're talking about um, Martian rovers, we shouldn't, of course, forget um, that there is another wonderful uh, Martian rover from NASA. And this is Opportunity, much smaller than Curiosity. But this landed on Mars in 2004, and it had a, a life expectancy of 90 Martian days, which we call sols. Now, it's just had its 5,000th Martian sunrise. Now, given that that was a life expectancy of 90 days, and it's still going, and there's 5,000, that is fantastic. It's soldiering on, um, despite having a, a broken wheel motor, means that it to go anywhere, they have to send it backwards. It just can't drive forwards anymore. But they just turn it round and trundle on backwards. Currently, it's in a place called Perseverance Valley, which is within uh, Endeavour Crater. 
So it's driven 28 miles uh, since it landed in 2004. Remember, these things only travel a few uh, yards and then they stop and decide what the next few yards are going to be because they're trying to minimise the the damage to it uh, as much as possible, obviously. But in that time, it's recorded um, 225,000 images uh, and sent them to Earth. So a wonderful um, testament to NASA's engineering's expertise. And only recently it's discovered what looked to be rock stripes. Um, Now, I'm not a geologist, but I gather we have those on Earth, and they're a result of sequential freezing and thawing. And the rock that forms uh, out of dust and sand, etc., that is like that, f- forms in these layers, in these ridges, uh, stripes. And what it's pictured looks just like you, we see in the, in, on Earth in some places. But they can't be sure uh, whether that has happened on Mars. But we do know there is water in the, uh, in the crust. And yes, in the summer, some of it will, will thaw. Uh, so could that have formed the same um, rock formations? The alternative, of course, is that perhaps they're just sculpted by the wind you know, driving dust and, and causing uh, similar uh, patterns. But uh, what a tremendous little uh, rover, you know, still to be working and still making discoveries, uh, helping to uh, increase our knowledge of the red planet. Now, um, I think we've mentioned the idea of possible life on Mars in previous episodes, uh, David, and and the chance of that has just been given a, a little bit of a boost uh, from work that's been done down here on Earth. The place most like Mars uh, is the Atacama Desert in Chile. And I say most like Mars because it's high, so low uh, air pressure, um, but it's also exceedingly arid, as is, Mar- as is Mars. You know, sometimes it goes for decades b- without rain, and that's one of the reasons why uh, we have so many astronomical telescopes in the uh, Atacama Desert, because of its um, height and because of the wonderfully clear, um, dry atmosphere. But some scientists from Washington State University have been studying um, microbes, um, uh, that they thought dead uh, in the sands of, of uh, the Atacama Desert. And they found that when uh, it rains, these things uh, become active again. Uh, so they just lie in a form of stasis, uh, you know, dormant, uh, until uh, they get um, a little bit of dampness around. So clearly they can cope with these drier conditions. So could this also uh, then occur on Mars, that's the hope that these microbes uh, might be there. You know, maybe you know several centimeters under the surface in the Martian soil, and when we know that the, the, the water melts um, during the Martian summer, it, that might activate them. So, uh, a possibility. Last thing on Mars is that another NASA um, satellite called Martian Reconnaissance Orbiter. That's been there uh, since 2005 and is still operating successfully. But uh, NASA wants it to work a little bit longer than previously planned. They're extending its life into the 2020s. So they're giving it a tune-up, but uh, remotely. Now, 
what happens is that the uh, thing is powered uh, by solar panels uh, during uh, the, the daytime on Mars whilst it's catching the light from the sun. But every now and again, of course, it goes into Mar- uh, Mars's shadow. So it doesn't get any power. Um, so it has batteries. Um, so what they're doing is those those units are, are beginning to suffer after all this time, uh, beginning to, uh, well, not fail, but degrade. So they're changing the way in which they charge uh, those batteries and reducing the loading on them so that those batteries can last longer. And also they're changing the orbit uh, a a little bit uh, in such a way that the spacecraft will spend less time uh, in the Martian shadow. So there won't be so much... uh, cause for the batteries to be operating at at full power Um, because NASA wants that spacecraft to continue with its own work but also to act as a relay uh, for the next Martian rovers and we've got two underway Um, there's one called InSight uh, 2018 um, that is when it's going to be launched uh, this year um, and that's going to land near the Martian equator um, and study um, really the, the the core of Mars, uh, the interior of Mars. But, you know, learn about the formations again, possibilities of life. Then there's another one called Mars um, 2020 um, uh, that's going on. Uh, I I don't know the details of that mission as yet. Going back to the InSight um, mission, um, uh, launched in just a a few months' time, um, that's taking a little microchip with it um, on which 2.4 million names are going to Mars. They're all going to be etched on this microchip. And one of them is mine. And I, I've, I've been sent by, by NASA a, a little boarding card showing my name, uh, showing the Lord, where I'm going from, which is the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, and ending up on the uh, plane of... Um, uh, Ideal happiness, that's the translation of Elysian Planitia, which is the name of the plane that it's landing on on Mars. It even shows me how many miles, how many million miles space points I've earned through the journey. <laughs> a wonderful little bit of promotion oh, uh, by really NASA. Nice, yeah. I, I just happened to see, you know, the uh, invite to sign up. thought, why not? And I've got my little ticket. <laughs> But uh, I'll no be going myself, you understand. <laughs> Not this year, anyway. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, just time, I hope, for a, a couple of um, short uh, news items. Um, our galaxy, of course, is the Milky Way. And we know that it's one of a group. And we've always thought that the nearest member of that group of a a similar-sized galaxy uh, was the Andromeda galaxy. Uh, We've always thought that um, that was our big brother, that it was about twice as massive as our galaxy. Now, uh, some Australian researchers uh, have just revised that down. What they've done is they've taken a, a different way of calculating the mass. They've looked at the 
speed of stars that we know that have been thrown out of Andromeda. And they've worked out from the speed of these stars uh, how fast they must have been going to escape from Andromeda. And using that, they can work it back to calculate its mass. Um, So that approach hasn't been done before. And that way of calculating its mass puts Andromeda on a par with the Milky Way. So perhaps we're more like twins rather than big brother, uh, little brother. And of course, um, Andromeda and Milky Way are rushing towards each other and will eventually merge, um, pass through each other and then eventually merge and coalesce into one. But that's five billion years away, so uh, no need to worry about it for now. Um, Now, it's unusual for galaxies to run towards each other. They only do that when they're close enough uh, to be gravitationally uh, attracted by each other. Elsewhere, the universe is expanding. All galaxies are rushing away from each other, or galaxy groups are rushing away from other galaxy groups. Um, Now, the Hubble telescope has been um, studying... Um, some remote galaxies uh, and scientists using the Hubble data have been looking at what we call C-feed variable stars. These are um, universal candles, if you like, uh, that we use to help us to measure distance at that type of star. Characteristics help us to measure from their brightness how far away they are. And they, scientists have been using that data uh, to check and redefine what we call the Hubble constant. And that's a term used to define the rate of expansion of the universe. And they found that to be that it's expanding 9% faster than we previously thought it was. So uh, what this boils down to is... Um, Perhaps dark matter, acts, uh, which is what powers the expansion of the uh, the universe, is acts a little bit more strongly than previously uh, understood, or perhaps Einstein's cosmological constant isn't quite so constant as he and everybody else thinks. All of these discoveries like this just open up uh, lots of areas for further research. And again, there was even something uh, um, this morning that I spotted uh, that researchers have just discovered that uh, stars formed uh, a little bit earlier after the Big Bang than previously thought. Uh, Signals uh, have been identified showing the birth of stars, perhaps something like, uh, I think it was 180 million years after the Big Bang, which is really quite close. And uh, the result that that implies that dark matter was behaving again in a way, perhaps sucking the heat out of the earlier stars, um, that that was previously not understood. So, the study of dark matter, way, way above my head, but is uh, an area of research that uh, people will be working on for many, many years uh, to come. Okay, David, so that is my um, review of uh, what's been happening in uh, space uh, over the, the last month or so. Thank you, John. Stars over Surrey, Constellation of the Month. Okay, David, my uh, Constellation of the Month for uh, March is going to be uh, Gemini, uh, the the, the twins. Um, uh, And listeners will be able to see the slides for... um, 
the, for, for, for the uh, constellation of the month uh, from the website uh, and also of course uh, a little video uh, explaining the the main uh, com- components uh, of the constellation two bright stars castor and pollux uh, but a couple of very nice um, deep space objects in there uh, as well okay so Gemini, of course, is riding high uh, in the night sky during the month, not that far away from last month's constellation of Orion. So Orion is still there, still good for for watching. Do have a look at the uh, nebula uh, just below the the belt in in the middle of the Orion sword. Um, Other constellations coming up, uh, Cancer, there's a good star cluster in the middle of Cancer um, called Praesipe or uh, the Beehive and then next to uh, Cancer is Leo. Um, with the bright star of uh, Regulus uh, at, at the feet of the, the lion, the, the chest of the lion, rather. Um, let's move on to um, uh, what else can be seen. A lot of people, of course, like to look at the moon. Its um, uh, full moon is uh, the uh, the 1st of March, so that was yesterday. Uh, then we've uh, got the, uh, the third quarter on the 8th, new moon on the 17th, the first quarter on the 24th and on the 31st david we have a full moon again so two full moons in the same month give us a, a moon. moon that's it we're getting it <laughs> you're getting too common nowadays oh, i know run of the mill run of the mill <laughs> Um, we've got some evening planets to look at uh, Mercury, an early evening object low in the west um, best seen after the middle of the month though, when it will be setting about two hours after the sun um, yeah, so look uh, due west but low uh, after sunset and hopefully you, you'll find Mercury Venus, um, again very low in the west um, but brilliant, you won't miss that at magnitude minus 3.8 very very uh, very very bright indeed Mars that we've talked about earlier a morning object um, relatively dim um, but in the east south east and visible from around half past three in the morning but it'll be getting brighter uh, as the month draws on and if you've got a telescope and you can resolve it into a disc shape uh, you'll find that it's getting slightly bigger uh, as the month goes on uh, as well as earth and mars are drawing closer to each other as our uh, orbits uh, take us round the sun Jupiter, another morning object visible at uh, magnitude minus two in the southeast to south before sunrise, um, brightening and uh, increasing in size again uh, throughout the month. Uh, Saturn is another early morning object, not as nowhere near as bright as Jupiter, um, but again getting better as the month goes on. Very low in the southeastern sky before sunrise. Uranus still visible this month, uh, all all night, evening and night, um, uh, but binocular object or better still, a telescope. Neptune, not visible at all. Now, a couple of events of interest uh, during March. Um, starting off um, uh, on the 4th, uh, Mercury and Venus, um, uh, just one degree uh, apart, low in the west, uh, 30 minutes uh, uh, after sunset. Now, Venus 
you can't miss. It's so bright. But Mercury, not so easy to find. So if you really want to see Mercury, get out there on the 4th and just look, um, uh, find Venus and Mercury only one degree away. So very, very close by. Um, Mercury, Venus are close together again on the 18th. Um, but as they are in the intervening days as well, of course. But on the 18th, they're joined by a very, very thin crescent moon, only 1% lit. So it'll only be very, very thin, but it should make a a, a nice sight, a, a nice straight line as well, low in the west, shortly after sunset. Uh, on the 19th, those with high-powered binoculars or, or, or a good telescope uh, can find Mars passing between two messier objects, M8 and M20. Those are both nebulae, uh, the Lagoon Nebula and the Triffid Nebula. So those are both low, low in the southeast, about 3.30 in the morning. But really does need a telescope to see that. Um, on the 22nd, uh, our, our moon uh, passes through uh, a cluster in Taurus called the Hyades. That's the V-shape that makes up the, the face of the bull. And the brightest star of that cluster is Aldebaran. Um, and the moon passes in front of that at half past 11 for 45 minutes. So you'll see the dark edge of the moon occult Aldebaran. It'll disappear, and 45 minutes later, it'll pop out the other side. So that's you know quite a nice thing to watch. Um, astronomical society meetings. Um, well, uh, the... Uh, Guildford Astronomical Society meeting was the the 1st of March, um, a structure in the early universe with Carlos Frank. So ones coming up after this broadcast are Tuesday the 13th, the exploration of Mercury, and that's at Farnham Astronomical Society, and it's one of their own members, Steve uh, Woodbridge, uh, taking us to to Mercury. That's at Aldershot Cricket Club at 7.45. Um, uh, Croydon Astronomical Society have two meetings per month, uh, both on Fridays, the 9th and the 23rd. The 23rd is yet to be announced, but um, it's Professor Carl Murray, an excellent speaker from Queen Mary University of London, um, talking about Cassini at Saturn, the end of an era. And that's at the Royal Russell School in Croydon, 745. You'll also meet at a school, Nonsuch, Nonsuch High School for Girls in Cheam, on Friday the 9th at 8pm, and it's at one of their members, David Fishwick, talking about weighing the stars. Um, Locally, we've got a stargazing evening uh, at the University of Surrey. The Department of Physics are running a stargazing session um, on Wednesday the 21st from 7 until 9.30. at 7.15, really, they'll be starting to doing a, a talk, um, and that will be in Lecture Theatre D within the lecture block. Um, the subject is to, yet to be announced. The stargazing proper will get underway at 7.45, and that will be at their observatory, but also with Guildford Astronomical Society providing some volunteers. It is free, but do uh, book via Eventbrite, um, and it is to be found on the university's website so uh, search the university's website department of physics events and you'll find it there's no 
astronomy on TV to tell you about because they're taking a break from the uh, the sky at night uh, this month. Um, so that's it, Dave. Uh, what's up for March? Well, thank you, John, for the fascinating insights. The next edition of Stars Over Surrey will be Friday the 30th of March. Thank you, John. Stars Over Surrey with Dave Jamatis and John Axtell from the Guildford Astronomical Society. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not keep up to date with the sound of Surrey by listening live at brooklandsradio.co.uk or through our free mobile app.